I want to begin this morning by asking you to, to imagine a situation. Imagine a situation in which you were talking to somebody that you know, and you were trying to tell them about who I am. And they'd never met me before. And think about how would you describe me to that person that you were trying to tell them who I am. Now, there might be a, a number of different ways you do that. You might, you might describe my physical attributes, right? You could tell them how tall or how short I am or, or about how much I weigh, or you could tell them about my lack of hair or my brown eyes or the different physical characteristics. You could tell them about what I do, and you probably do that because you could tell them, well, hey, I'm, the, I'm a pastor at, at Thornydale Family Church. Or you could tell them that... Uh, I volunteer at Catalina State Park, or you could tell them that I officiate high school volleyball. And that would tell them something about me. You might describe groups that I belong to. You might tell them, well, he goes to this gym, or he belongs to this political party, or he went to this high school or college. And all those things would, would help the other person to understand who I am. But frankly, if they ran across me on the street and they didn't know me, those descriptions may or may not really help them to, to recognize that it's me, right? Well, now I want you to think about something else. I want you to think about, about as Christians, how do other people recognize us? I think all of us in here, we would like to believe, right, that, that we belong to the family of God, that we're God's children. So I want you to think for a minute, what's the one distinguishing characteristic that would allow other people to really know for sure that we're part of God's family? And what I want you to do is I want you to write that answer down. I've given you space to do that in your sermon outline, to write down one characteristic. If you had to just pick one, I know there's a lot, but if you had to just pick one, what would it be? And in just a moment, we're all going to find out whether or not you wrote down the correct answer. So you have a quiz for you today. Now, we're going to find that out because we're, we're going through the, the book of Exodus. And today we're going to come to Exodus chapters 32 through 34. This is a really interesting section because it kind of fits in between two different descriptions of the tabernacle. Last week, Ryan talked about the instructions that God gave for the building of the tabernacle. And then next week, we're going to wrap up our study of the book of Exodus as we look at the last six chapters of the book where it actually describes the actual building of the tabernacle. And today what we're going to do, we're going we're to look at this section in between there, and, and probably a lot of this is familiar to many of us this morning. And in this section, we're going to answer that question that I posed to you just a moment ago. What would be the one distinguishing characteristic by which people could know for sure that we're part of God's family and I'm going to actually give you the answer right up front so you don't have to stay in suspense for too, so long. And then we're going to explain, use this passage to explain why that is the answer. And here's, here's the answer to that question. God's people are defined by God's presence. God's people are defined by God's presence. Now, there might be a lot of other things you wrote down, and some of them are probably true, but I would... I would suggest to you that they all really come back to this idea of God's presence in our life. That's the one thing that distinguishes us from the rest of the world is that we have God's presence in our lives. And we're going to see that very clearly in this passage today. 
Um, obviously, as we've been going through the book of Exodus, I can't read every verse in three chapters. I guess I could, but you guys, I know you want to eat a little later on today, so we won't do that. But what I want you to do, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. Turn to the book of Exodus chapter 32. I'm going to kind of take us through some of this. I'm going to, I'm going to share with you some verses as we go through there. I'm going to primarily focus on, on some passages in Exodus chapter 33. But you can follow along as I kind of set the stage for us here. Because that's going to be really important that we put those verses into context. So we get to chapter 32. And uh, Moses is up on the mountain. And the people below, they get impatient. They're like, Moses, when are you going to come back down? And so they turn to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, Aaron, why don't you make for us some gods that will lead us out of this place? So we come to Exodus chapter 32, and here's the next verse, the first verse we're going to look at today in verse 4. And here's what Aaron does. It says, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. You can go to the next verse then. And they, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's really interesting there that it says plural gods. Because think about it. They made one golden calf, and yet, and yet Aaron's saying, Here's your gods. Why gods? Well, they didn't completely get away from the worship of Yahweh, of the Lord here, because we see in the very next verse that, that, that Aaron says, well, look, we're going to have a feast to the Lord. I'm going to build an altar, and tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the Lord. So what's going on here? I think here's what they're doing. I think they're, they're turning and they're, they're adding something to the worship of the Lord. They're saying, yeah, we'll worship Yahweh, but... We also want this golden calf because it reminds us of the gods that we had when we were back in Egypt. And as we're going to talk about a little later on this morning, we can do the very same thing, right? We can, we can worship the one true God, but we can add all these other things into it as well. And that's what the people did. And so God or Moses is up on the mountain with God, and God says, Hey, look, you need to go down and take care of your people, he tells Moses. I, lo I love that. You need to take care of your people, Moses, because they're, they're rebelling against me. So Moses goes down, and he sees all that's going on there. And he's obviously not very happy, so understandably, he takes these two tablets that God has written, the Ten Commandments and, and the description of the tabernacle and all these other things, and he throws them down, and, and he breaks them, and he's obviously very upset about that. He's like, Aaron, what are you doing here? And Aaron says, look, Moses, it, it's not really all my fault. He says, I, I collected all this golden jewelry from all the people, and I threw it in the fire, and this calf just popped out. Can't tell me there's not some humor in the Scriptures, right? Just popped out. It, isn't that what we do? We, we make excuses for sin, don't we? It's always someone else's fault. It, it just happened. And Moses is, is really upset here because he knows God is upset. And so he takes that golden calf and he grounds it into a powder. It says he scatters it over the water and then he makes the people drink the water. They're going to suffer the consequences of their sin. 
And God is still really upset at the people. He tells Moses, I'm just going to wipe them all out. But Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He does this time after time after time. And it's important to understand that that God never changes his mind, at least not in the way we think about it in our human thinking. But God is is influenced here by Moses' intercession on behalf of the people. But they still have to pay for their sins. So God says to the Levites, I want you to go through the camp. I want you to kill 3,000 people. And then God brings a plague on the people. So they actually suffer the consequences of their sins there. And then we get to chapter 33, where we're going to spend most of our time. And, and Moses comes before God, and, and we're going to, he's going to have this conversation with God here. And this is where God's going to reveal the the message that we're looking at today, this idea of God's presence being the defining factor for those who are God's people. And we come to chapter, or verse 2 here, and God reveals something really interesting to Moses. He says this, I will send an angel before you. An angel, keep that in mind for a minute. And I will drive out all the ites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. You're a stiff-necked people. What God says to them, he says, you know, Moses, he said, from now on, I'm going to lead you a different way. I've been personally leading you all along with this this." cloud and this fire that goes before them he says but you know what I'm not going to do that anymore I'm going to send an angel to lead you I'm not he says I'm not going to go up among you and we see here the holiness of God he can't he can't be present among all this sin that's there and Moses Moses he's upset by that Because he understands what we said before, that God's people are defined by God's presence. Now we get to to verse 7 there in chapter 32, and there's kind of what we call a parenthetical section. Between verse 7 and verse 11, it talks about this tent of the meeting where Moses would go to meet with God. And that phrase, the tent of the meeting, it's used elsewhere, especially beyond this point in the Scriptures, to describe the actual actual tabernacle, but I think this is something different here. This is some kind of a temporary tent that Moses pitches, a place where he can go out and meet with God, because the tabernacle hasn't been built yet. We're going to see that next, next week as we get to the end of the book of Exodus. And the reason I think that Moses had to pitch this tent outside the camp is because God was a holy God, and these were sinful people. And so Moses says, God, I'm not going to ask you to come and meet with me in their midst. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to meet with you outside the camp. And I wish we had more time to spend on these verses because we we could really do a whole message just on these verses. It's amazing here because what it reveals is that God spoke to Moses in a way that he never spoke to anyone else in the Bible. A lot of times, especially with the prophets, God would speak in in dreams. He would speak in different ways. But it tells us here that he spoke with Moses in an intimate, personal way. And Moses got to be the beneficiary of that. And so this conversation that 
that Moses is having with God, it picks up again in verse 12. And be, this is the section where we're really going to see today the, this idea of God's presence being the defining factor for his people. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name. You've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? And here's verse, this last verse is really the key part here. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? That's the part there that I would suggest to you shows that that's what makes God's people distinct. The fact that God is with them, that's how everyone else will know that God is present with us. He is with us. His presence is there. That's how we can know that we genuinely belong to the family of God. Now, this is an interesting conversation, isn't it, that Moses has with God. He starts out and he says, hey, look, God, you said you're going to send an angel in front of us instead of yourself. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Can you tell me more about about what's going to happen here, how you're going to lead your people? God says, look, Moses, you've, you've found favor in my sight. And Moses says, well, then, God, if I found favor in your sight, will you show me your ways? He said, will you show me your ways because I want to know you, not just know about you. I want to know you. I want to have a, an intimate, personal relationship with you. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll go with you. I'll give you rest. And there's something that's hard for us to to see in our English translations. When God says to Moses, I will go with you, I will give you rest, those yous there, the the pronouns, they're singular. Here's what God's saying. God says to Moses, I'll go with you, Moses. But he's not saying he's going to go with all the people. And we know that because in the very next verse, what does Moses say? He says, well, then if you're not going to go with us, God, then just leave us here. God's presence was so important to Moses. He wanted God's presence among his people so much that he says, God, if you're not going to go with us, then you might as well just leave us here. I know you promised to take us into this great land, but God, what we want more than anything is we want you, not just the land, not just the stuff that you're going to give us. We want you. We want your presence. So so God says, okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses makes another prayer request. And you get one thing you got to say about Moses is that he's he's pretty bold, isn't he? Here's what he says in verse 17. He says, Moses says this, God, will you show me your glory? Will you show me your glory? That's a pretty bold, pretty bold prayer, isn't it? 
Earlier he prayed, God, show me your ways so I can know you. Now he says, God, show me your glory. Now, I don't think Moses is, has any idea what he's asking for here. I really don't. We're going to see that in a moment. God's going to say, hey, hold on a second, Moses. But here's the thing I love about Moses. He's bold, isn't he? He has this great zeal for God, so much zeal. He says, God, show me your glory. And here's how God answers him. He said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So here's what God says. God says, you know, Moses, I know you want to see my glory. I'll show you my goodness. I won't show you my glory, but I'll show you my goodness. And I'll proclaim my name. That's his character. He says, I'm going to show you who I really am. And then in the rest of the chapter, we see this conversation in which God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to go hide in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to pass by you. And as I pass by you, I'm going to put my hand over you to protect you. And I'll pass by, and once I get by, I'll remove my hand so you can see just a little bit of my back. Now, obviously, there's a lot of figurative language here. God is a spirit. He doesn't physically have hands. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have a back. But here's what God's saying to Moses. He's saying, Moses, you know, you want to see my glory. Not going to happen. We see elsewhere in the Scripture, actually, in this passage where God talks about the fact anyone sees me face to face, he's going to die. God didn't want Moses to die. He says, but what I'll do, I'll show you just a glimpse. I'll show you my goodness. I'll show you just a glimpse. And we know later on, we'll see in chapter 34, that just at that little glimpse that Moses is glowing so much that he has to put a veil over his face every time he comes before the people. That just that little glimpse of who God is, that he glowed with that. So we've seen clearly this morning that, that God's people, are defined by God's presence. And if that's the case, and I believe it is according to the Scriptures, then the question for us then becomes, well, how do I make sure that I can experience God's presence in my life? I know I want that, don't you? Don't you want to experience God's presence in your life? And fortunately for us, there's some, some really practical guidance in this passage about how we can do that. So I want to share with you four things that you can do. If you want to experience God's presence in your life, four things. First of all, repent. Repent. We see this all the way back in chapter 32. We see the people's response. When, 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 when God says, you know, you guys can't do this. You can't worship this golden calf. I'm going to pour out my, my wrath on you. And it tells us in verse 4 how the people responded. Here's what it says. It says, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. When God says, I'm not going to go with you, you're not going to experience my presence, it says the people mourned. And they took off their ornaments. That, that's a picture of humility there. It's a picture of all their jewelry and all this fine stuff that they'd taken out of Egypt. He said, we're going to just take that off. All this stuff that puts attention on us, we're going to take it all off, God, because it's all about you. Now, 
I will ad- readily admit that there's some question here about exactly how sincere their repentance is. Because we're going to see later on that these people keep up the same pattern that we've seen all throughout the book of Exodus. They obey God for a little bit, and then they get tired of that, and they kind of do their own thing. But I, I think at least for this moment that there was genuine repentance. There was genuine sorrow there. Not just sorrow because they got caught for their sin, but, but genuine mourning over their sin because they would see it from the same perspective that God sees their sin. It's the kind of repentance, it's the kind of sorrow that Paul wrote about when he wrote to the the church in Corinth in his second letter, and he wrote these words. He says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, while worldly grief produces death. What he's saying there is, is the first step in this process. If you want God's presence in your life, the first thing you have to do is you have to see your sin from God's perspective. You have to mourn over that sin. You have to realize the grief that your sin is not only is causing God. You have to recognize how it's separated from you from God and how, how you can't have His presence in your life as long as you don't do something about that sin in your life. So here's my question. When, when somebody points out sin in your life or when the Bible points out sin in your life when you come to see that sin what do you do with it do you try to excuse it do you try to explain it away do you ignore it or do you get on your knees before God and say God I am so sorry I don't want this to turn into a lifestyle I want to I want to repent I want to change my mind I want to turn my life around and make sure that this sin doesn't become something that 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 characterizes my life So the first thing there is that that we have to repent. The second thing that we have to do is that we have to ask boldly. Now, all throughout the book of Exodus, there's been a lot of stuff that we could fault Moses for, right? Moses doesn't always do things quite like he should. But the one thing that we can't ever fault him for, especially as we get to this part of the book, is his zeal for God. I'm glad here that Moses asked to see God's glory. Even though that wasn't possible, it reveals his heart. It reveals a heart that really wants to know God deeply and intimately. And so my question for you this morning is, do you love God that much? Do you desire God that much? Do you have that kind of zeal that you want to ask boldly? I know I do. I want to have the kind of life that can ask God for bold things, especially when it comes to his presence. I want to say, God, man, Just allow me to see your presence in my life. The third thing that we have to do if we want to experience God's presence is this. We have to approach God through the right mediator. And this is really the key, to be honest. I mean, think about the the people of Israel here. All throughout the entire book, and, and especially in this section that we're looking at today, they could never approach God on their own. When Moses goes up the mountain, God says, don't you guys even get near this mountain while Moses is up here with me. Because they were a stiff-necked people. They were a sinful people. That's why Moses had to pitch the tent of the meeting outside the camp, because they were a sinful people. And when when Moses went to meet with God out there, the people couldn't be present with God. And so they needed a mediator. And God appoints a mediator for them in Moses. 
Now, they didn't, they didn't always see this, though. They didn't understand their need for a mediator. As we talked about before, they thought they could just go to God any old way that they wanted. They said, God, we love you, but we're going to add this golden calf to what we're doing. God says, no. He says, I appointed Moses to be the mediator for you. You go through Moses. You don't just get to decide how you're going to come to me. I'm a holy God. That's why a little later on in the book of here in, in, in chapter 34, why God says this about himself. He says, For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. Because he's a jealous God. And what have they done? They, they'd worshiped other gods. And God says, No, you can't do that. You can't worship me and throw in a bunch of other gods with it and think that's going to be okay. He says, The only way that you're going to come to me is through Moses right now. And that's a picture of what happens in the New Testament when, when God brings Jesus to be our mediator. And God says Jesus is the only one. He's the mediator. He's the only one. Here's what Paul wrote to Timothy in his first letter. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator, that's it. I mean, Jesus essentially said the same things to, to his disciples the night before he went to the cross. Most of us are familiar with this. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one, no one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. That's the only way that we can come to God. It's not Jesus plus anything else. Not Jesus plus my own work, not Jesus plus going to church, not Jesus plus giving offerings, it's Jesus plus nothing. But here's the thing, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So we have to come to God through one meteor that God chooses. And then finally, the last thing, we need to, we need to know God as he really is. We need to know God as He really is. One of my favorite books is a book called Knowledge of the Holy. I've shared some things from, from that book with you before. And at the beginning of the book, the author A.W. Tozier, he writes these words, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But here's the problem. We get our ideas about who God is from all kinds of places, often the wrong places, don't we? We get our ideas about God from, from TV shows and movies and sometimes from books. And, and you know what? Even, unfortunately, within the church, sometimes we get false ideas about who God is. And usually what happens is that there are these two extremes that some churches go to. Not, not all of them, certainly. There's a lot of good churches out there. But there's two extremes that people can fall into. On, on one extreme is this, the churches that have the, the motto, love period. God is love period. That's it. He's love. That's all God is. He's love. And so they excuse sin. They don't talk about how holy God is. They don't talk about how righteous he is. Just love. God is love. God loves everybody. Just do your own thing. God will love you. And at the other extreme, you have the, what I would call uh, 
the uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God church. You know, that portray God as just being this cruel tyrant out there who's sitting up there in heaven with his lightning bolts just waiting to zap someone every time that they do something wrong. And you have these two extremes. But fortunately, in this passage, God shows us that that he's different than that. He's not one or the other. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34, God does exactly what he promised Moses earlier. He says, I'm going to show you my name, remember? I'll show you my name, and I'll show you my goodness. And originally, this was going to be the the passage I was going to use as really the basis for the the sermon this morning. God led me in a a different direction. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is really important. So what does the Lord do? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. What does he proclaim? His name, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh. That's the God's covenant name, Yahweh, Yahweh. He proclaims his name. He says, this is who I am. And now he's going to proclaim his goodness. And here's what, how his goodness is described. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, and here's the but, who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So what is God's goodness? God's goodness, he says, I'm full of grace and mercy. I delight in forgiving sin. He says, but. I'm also a holy and righteous God who will by no means clear the guilty, who will make sure that people suffer the consequences of their sin. And what what he's doing here is he's really keeping two ideas in tension, like a bungee cord, right? On one hand, over here, mercy and grace over here, holiness. And we don't like tension in our lives, do we? We want to get rid of the tension. So so what do we tend to do? We tend to let go of one end or the other of this. God says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to let go of my grace and mercy. You don't have to let go of my holiness. He says, I have a solution for this. And that solution is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who came to this earth, he lived a holy life. He's righteous. Completely righteous. And he died on the cross willingly. He paid the penalty for your sin over here. But guess what? That also provides mercy and grace over here so that your sins can be forgiven. That's who God is. That's why he had to send Jesus Christ into the world to take care of this this tension that we try to solve in all the wrong ways. So we've seen this morning that God's people are defined by God's presence. So if you want to have God's presence in your life, I I hope I've made it really clear that the first step is to put your faith in Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. If you've never done that, would you do that today? That's the only way you can have God's presence in your life. And if you've never done that, we would love nothing more than to sit down and talk to you about how you could do that in your life. 
I'm not going to ask you to just raise your hand or pray some prayer or walk down the aisle or anything like that because this is an important decision. It's one that you ought to understand fully before you make it. And so Ryan and myself, any of the elders, we would love to talk to you more about how you can, how you can do that, how you can put your faith in Jesus alone. See us after the service. Our contact information is in the book.